Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. This summer, join Greenlight Guru and a cast of world-class medical device innovators as we bring you True Quality 2022, which is a live event for like-minded professionals. From the beginning, Greenlight Guru has been more than just an EQMS. We're a community of medical device professionals inspired by each other's efforts to improve the quality of life with quality products. As our audience has grown, it's become clear that we're fostering something special. That's why we're honored to have True Quality 2022, where these thoughts, conversations, and growth for our industry take place. But don't wait until it's too late. Secure your seat to True Quality 2022, June 6th through the 8th in San Diego, California. Visit our website or the link in the show notes for more detail. Welcome back. This is Etienne Nichols, the host of today's podcast. Today is kind of an interesting episode because we're actually recording on site at a conference, SC Bio uh, in South Carolina. So this was a really a fun episode to do. It was with Sean Regan from RhythmLink. RhythmLink is International is a 20-year-old 300-employee Columbia, South Carolina medical device company that designs, manufactures, and distributes devices that physically connect patients to machines to either elicit or record neurophysiologic information from a patient. RhythmLink's devices are often used during risky surgery to help prevent or reduce paralysis, identify tumors, and map the nervous system. Their products are also used to monitor brain waves, to ID seizures and strokes in the emergency department, ICU. And these products were the first of their kind to be cleared by the FDA to work specifically in MRIs. RhythmLink also works with a variety of other companies who utilize and leverage RhythmLink's internal capabilities to create partnerships to develop and manufacture OEM and custom solutions for companies such as Johnson Johnson, Nuvasiv, Synthes, and SI Bone. RhythmLink has been PE-backed since 2019. It's enjoyed being named Inc. 5000's fastest-growing companies list eight times and has been named one of the best places to work in South Carolina for 10 years running. So the name of today's episode is From Startup to Industry Leader. And as I mentioned, this was a live recording. So some of the things you'll hear, I mean, sound quality may be a little bit different than you're used to, but hope you enjoy today's episode. How about these student films, huh? Wow, that's amazing. And Bob, thank you for a great panel. Very interesting conversation. Uh, I do look forward to getting the report on your meeting with the General Assembly next week. Uh, Just see how that goes. Hi, everybody. I'm Russell Cook. I'm the Director of Academic Innovations with SCRA. Our team works really hard to help. We're looking to uh, help commercialize technologies out of our universities, so we support translational research as well as academic startups. I'm excited for our next session today. It's a live podcast recording featuring Columbia-based RhythmLink CEO, Sean Reagan. A global medical device podcast hosted by Greenlight Guru's ETN Nichols is where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful, actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. We are excited that their global audience will be introduced to one of South Carolina's brightest minds. Please welcome ETN Nichols and Sean Reagan. Thank you. 
that music, I feel like we ought to start our CrossFit workout here in a minute, but <laughs> can you guys hear us? I, yeah, I don't. I, I don't want to do that. Oh, no, okay. Yeah, so we'll, we'll do this instead. So uh, welcome, everybody, to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Um, I'm excited to be with you guys today. Uh, it's a little bit different for me. Usually, I'm in my guest bedroom. Today, I'm in front of you guys. So for those of you listening on the podcast, uh, that's you may have some different noise in the background, but that's what's going on here. Today, I'm excited to be with Sean Regan. He's the CEO of RhythmLink. Um, you're originally a... It, it, we, we got some introduction. I'm... I'd like to kind of just dive into your background. So you were originally a neurodiagnostic tech, but you've changed things. So, so how did that? Yeah. Um, so my background really is clinical. Uh, out of undergrad, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I ended up taking a job with a company that does something that you probably haven't heard of, but it's called neurophysiologic interoperative monitoring. And essentially what, what we would do is we would... Um, I worked for a company that got contracted out to go to hospitals to bring a bunch of equipment into the operating room, hook a patient up with a whole bunch of different electrodes that would go on or under the skin, and you would monitor the nervous system essentially in real time to try to identify dangerous uh, situations and prevent m most likely paralysis from happening. So if you remember the game Operation, um, when you, you touch the side and the nose buzzes and goes off, it, it, literally, it really is a lot like that. And that's probably pretty much all you need to know. Uh, so um, I knew I wanted to be in the healthcare field. I knew I wanted to help people. And this actually lined up really well with what it, what it was that I studied and I did. And so sort of learned this skill and this trade. And I got into neurophysiology. And we used a whole bunch of different devices in that. And that kind of eventually ties us um, to where we get to today. Yeah, so when we talk about RhythmLink today, I mean, we're at 200 employees. I've got a few notes here, but you guys design, manufacture, sell devices used to, like you said, to monitor the nervous system. So that's, that's uh, it, it's, it's a big change. So one of the things I was curious about, now we, the, let, me, let me first state the, the title of today's, the startup to industry leader. Um, what did that look like in the early days? <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, all we did was essentially recognize a need out there that we felt. So I, myself, having that clinical background, using these products, we knew a couple things. One is that um, eventually in the industry that we were in, they were going to change from reusable products to disposable. And we knew that that was going to happen. Uh, we just didn't know when. Uh, and we also knew that with the reasons why it was hard to move from a, a reusable product to disposable, um, which really came, basically came from uh, the issue of getting these things made, having them made well, having a, a continuous supply of them, and, and really someone uh, understanding that once the product got out there in a disposable fashion, that it was going to be a wave and it was going to continue to take, take things over. So we looked at these relatively simple devices, which the, our original products are, they're little subdermal needles that get slid right underneath the skin. They're attached to a wire. They have a touchproof connector that gets plugged into an amplifier. And we looked at them and we said, well, these don't look complicated. And I remember this is 20 years ago. Um, these don't look complicated. Let's make these ourselves. And, and, and we said, great. Let's do it. How hard could it be? Let's start a, let's start a company. So we did. We started a company. Um, and uh, there's three of us that founded the company. Uh, I was a clinical person. There was one other clinical person who also worked in the capital equipment area. And then there was a, um, uh, more of a, a business-oriented um, uh, partner. And 
uh, we all had jobs, but we, we started the company essentially in our, in our spare time. And um, I think in July of this year, we'll celebrate officially being a company of 20 years. Wow. Um, but that, we didn't really know what we were doing, which was, which was both scary, but also in retrospect, it was awesome because we didn't know all of the challenges that we would have. And if we did, we, we probably wouldn't have done it in the first place. Yeah. So starting a, starting a company is hard enough, but you started a medical device company. What would you say some of the unique challenges that you faced early on with that? Um, well, I don't know if they're unique, but um, I, I mean, for us, w w one of them is we didn't have any money. <laughs> so uh, we, didn't, we didn't have any patentable technology. We didn't have any IP. This didn't, didn't, wasn't born out of an incubator or anything like that. So we had an idea and we had to try to figure out how to do it. So we bootstrapped it ourselves. And um, that was both good and bad. It was great because we, we were able to do it. We were able to maintain control. We were able to do all the things that we really wanted to do. At the same point, we put ourselves at tremendous financial risk. Um, you know, it, we, we put all of our savings into the companies. We, we quit our jobs. Um, we were running a medical device company out of a, of a kitchen and a living room. Uh, we didn't even have a garage to, to, to move stuff into. So how, how long before you took funding? Um, well, or did we never really took funding. Um, we, got a, we got a grant from SCRA, from uh, SC Launch, probably about um, eight or nine years in. Um, but at that point, we were pretty well established. So we never really got any funding. Uh, 2019, we partnered with a private equity group uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but so now, in a sense, we have access to more capital than we had before. We, we can do things and we have done things with that, particularly on the acquisition front. Um, but th th that's, a, that's a far cry yeah. from, from where we were uh, yeah. like at the very beginning. So, well, so early on, I, you, you had a possible way of getting money. I, I remember you telling me a story about someone giving you a check. Can you, can you tell us about that? Uh, well, my, yeah, my dad, my dad wrote a check um, that we never cashed. And, and I remember going to him and saying, just in case we need money, um, you know, can, you, can we borrow money from you? And I think he wrote a check for $30,000 that we never cashed, but we kept up on a cork board, you know, pinned up there. And it was really just in case money. Because at that point, uh, we had tapped out everything. And, you know, if anything had really, really gone wrong, then you're, you're done. You're, yeah. There's just the margin of error is so thin that, um, but we, but we never had to cash it, which was great, and uh, it was awesome to be able to say, "Hey, Dad, you can just, you just <laughs> void that check." Um, so that, that was, um, yeah. I mean, that that stuff. It was exciting, but it was also it wasn't a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but you, you were. I was a lot younger and and wasn't married yet. Didn't have kids yet. Didn't have a lot to lose. So that that part made it a lot easier to be able to do that. So. You were, you were acutely aware of the need, you understood the pain, and you, maybe you even had an idea of how you were going to do this, but um, what were your thoughts when you started talking to the FDA, or did you start talking to the FDA? What did that look like? Sure. We, uh, so 20 years ago, things were, were much different on that front, and um, I don't want to say it was easy, um, but it was pretty straightforward. We, I think we got in touch with the FDA sometime in August of 2002, uh, submitted a 510K that we we got we called them and we just said how do we do this you know and yeah. we we asked and we went online and we looked at other 510Ks and we started filling out a 510K and 
Back then, it was a lot different. Back then, you just had to really say, these are the things that we're, we promised we're gonna do, and when you audit us, <laughs> you can check, and you can make sure that we're following what it is we're supposed to do. So I think we, we started in, or we submitted in August, and we got our 510K clearance in December of 2002, and at, then had our first sale of, in April of two, uh, 2003. Wow. So it, it, was, it was fast, and we didn't have to do any of the biocompatibility. We didn't have to do any clinic. I mean, there was, there, was, there was none of that. So in that sense, we were also very lucky, um, or smart, if you want to go there, uh, because we, we picked the right type of, of industry, the right type of product, where we could do this uh, the, the right timing to do it. It's a, it's a disposable product, so there's a lot of turn, so our cash flow was always really good. Not that that was something that we knew at all. That was really, it's just essentially you know, luck in a certain sense. Um, well, it's, it's interesting because when I talk about, I talk to people who maybe develop devices early on, in, well, when I say early on, well, I'm just using your time reference as, you know, early 2000s, late 90s. Um, the collaboration, that, at least they typically tell me that the collaboration was not necessarily there or, or maybe it was not as desirable as it could be, whereas now the, the FDA is, is really encouraging a lot of collaboration. And maybe your story is slightly different, and I can't help but wonder, did you come in with more of a beginner's mindset, and could that have helped yeah, I, it's yeah. So, such a long time ago. It might have yeah. just been like, hey, can you point us in the right direction? And they did. And, and really, you go back and occasionally I'll pull out that first 510K and look at it. And there's not a ton of stuff in there. You know? yeah. So part of it is, I think, just that's the way things were back then. Um, you know, these days, uh, and in particular, this is probably eight years or so ago, when, when we did um, uh, working through the FDA and doing a lot of collaboration with them on some projects for products that are MR conditional. So these are products that, that can be used in an MRI setting under certain conditions. And really it was the first time that a company got uh, FDA clearance for products to be used in a 1.5 and a 3-point Tesla um, coil uh, that are not implants, but these are electrodes that are on the skin to be able to record brain waves, basically. And so we went to the FDA before we were going to do this because there really weren't a ton of predicates out there. And there had been a lot of implants that had been um, cleared through the FDA uh, to be used in an MRI under certain conditions, but nothing that was like on top of the skin. So there's a whole series of different questions as far as safety and efficacy goes. And we worked a lot with them. Like we worked with the FDA. It was a really good collaboration. We worked with an outside testing company and really the three companies triangulated, did a ton of work. And... That ended up being really successful. We were the first company to come out with an FDA-cleared product in that space. Um, it's been a really successful product for us. Uh, it's safe. It's effective. Um, it's made a, really a big difference in, in people's lives. We're essentially able to, to uh, be able to monitor people's brains um, e easier and for longer periods of time. Oftentimes what will happen is... Uh, someone will come in with some type of an altered conscious state. Uh, they're having a seizure or they're not acting the right way. And they'll put a bunch of electrodes on the, on the head. It usually takes about 30 minutes to put the electrodes on. It, it takes a, um, you have to have a really trained special person to be able to do it. They're not always available. So it can take a long time to get electrodes on the head to figure out what's going on with the brain so that you can figure out how to tra treat the patient. Uh, then if you want to image the patient, you have to take all those electrodes off, image the patient in a CAT scan or an MRI, and then find that person again, put the electrodes back on the head. So you keep doing this dance. And what happens is, ultimately, uh, the, the brain doesn't get monitored as much or as often as you'd like. Um, 
So with our electrodes, the ability to put the electrodes on once and keep them on and leave them on during an imaging study uh, allows the brain to be monitored more often. So you get much better clinical information um, quicker and consistently all the time. So you're able to find those, those dangerous situations and then, and then treat them. Um, so it, it, it's kind of a big deal, but it, the MRI is a scary place. You can get burns very easily. Uh, that, that's usually the big thing that happens. In, and uh, putting that type of a product on, on a patient, especially if they're not conscious or they're sedated, and you're heating these electrodes up and they're burning, that's, that's a terrible situation. So um, it was really a wonderfully collaborative effort. It was a lot of work. Um, one of the cool things that we found is that as we were able to do this, we really set the path for the FDA in the way they wanted these types of products tested and the level of, of safety that they're really looking for. So we, we do have one competitor now in this space, but the way that they did their testing compared to ours was a much lower bar. So their IFU is filled with all kinds of restrictions and additional conditions that they have to meet that we didn't have to meet. Uh, I think because we really collaborated well with the, with the FDA. And that, that's been good for us because we basically have a, we've got a better product. We've got a product that's easier to use, it's safer, um, yeah. and, and the industry has recognized that as well. I like what you said there about um, you, this was kind of a newer, or maybe there wasn't quite a competitor in this space. Uh, when that happens and you're in a kind of a blue ocean situation, you have a lot of options. And you took the, the high road, I guess, and there's two benefits that came out of that. If you really you do your thorough testing and thorough development, um, you're going to pave the way and, and increase the barrier to entry for other companies, I would assume. And then you're also going to uh, um, uh, really help the patient. Because, you know, our goal as medical device professionals, I would hope, is to improve the quality of life. <laughs> right. And uh, it, it sounds like that is one of the side benefits. Yeah, and, you know... You we're getting to really why we're here in the first place, like halfway through this. No, right? and, and, sorry, guys. It, um, <laughs> I, but I do that. I do that all the time, right? I, I, you know, I think it's for me. It's a given. That's why I do this. Is like I, I want to be able to help people. It's something I've been interested in my whole life, and and but that that's what we're doing here, really. Um, so I, you know, for us as a company, it, it's an easy choice because you don't want to. You, you don't want to do a poor job. You don't want to do something that's not going to have, coming from a clinical background, um, the data that our products are, they, they take data from the patient and they route it to a machine, that the machine does something to it so that you can, you can do something with the information. It, it's garbage in, garbage out. If you get poor data in the front end, you can't do what, what it is you want to do. As a clinician, that was one of the worst things you could, you could deal with was just, you know, crap data. Uh, it made your life horrible. So got to be a good product. It's got to be safe. You can't be hurting people while you're trying to help them. Uh, so for us, it's, it's just, it's easy because that I think is built into our DNA. It's, it's the way that we run the company. Yeah. And maybe we should ask if there are any questions at this point just to wake the audience up. You think okay, they're, they're, awake. You, you think they're, they're sleeping. Uh, I, you know, I, I know they trust us, so it's possible. They'll, they'll probably listen to the recording if they have to. So, uh, we, so we talked a little bit about how you uh, collaborated with the FDA. You, you saw a, a need, you, you met that need. That was the goal. You started collaborating with the FDA. So let's fast forward a little bit uh, to manufacturing. How did that look like when you started coming up with the product? Um, what did the manufacturing look like? Yeah, sure. So, um, so this is kind of, this is a fun story. Um, so a, as we got started, um, <laughs> We, we had a product, we had a design, we actually went to, uh, and so I know this, this is being recorded, right? 
Well, I think. <laughs> so we actually we went to the, the state of South Carolina and we said, we, we have these products, we want to make them. Where do we get these made? Can you, can you connect us with companies that do that? And they, they, they didn't. They couldn't. They said, there, there really isn't any place to make these here. This is 20 years ago. This is 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. So, um, so what we ended up doing is we, we actually hired someone who was an expat who lived in China who went to the USC, uh, it, was, it was in the MIBS program, it's now the, the Dollarmore School of International Business, or, or it's the International Business Track, and hired him, and that person helped us find a contract manufacturer in China to make our product. So, um, so that's what we did. We went over there, we interviewed a whole bunch of contract manufacturers, we picked one, um, they started making our product, and you know, sort of away we went. We had a contract manufacturer, they were doing a halfway decent job, we had a product now that was cleared. We were selling it. Uh, at this point, we start quitting our jobs <laughs> um, and, and working on this full time. So uh, the, the plan always was, was to move away from a contract manufacturer. We didn't exactly know what that was going to look like, but we were concerned with IP and ownership and, and everything else. And predictably, a couple years in, uh, the contract manufacturer, for lack of a better term, screwed us over and took our product and our design and withheld, withheld shipments from us and said, here's a new contract, uh, we want you to sign it. And at this point we knew that they were making it for other people. It was basically so blackmail. They, yeah, they, they tried to blackmail us into signing a contract that would make it impossible for us to get this product made elsewhere in China. And, and we said no in, in, in some not so nice words. And essentially, we, we started our own company there in China, and we, op we opened up our own company to, to do manufacturing. In about a month and a half, we spun a company up, we created our manufacturing line, we'd hired people, we'd transferred over uh, everything that we needed to do, and we started making our own, our own product with our own factory and our own people. Um, that was a do-or-die type of moment. Um, we didn't. We really didn't have any other choice. We didn't. The first go around, we didn't have any choice to really, but to find a contract manufacturer in the first place. We didn't. Have, we didn't have money. We didn't have expertise. We couldn't figure out any other way to do it. And then, um, you know, and then they tried to blackmail us, and 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 we had to start something up. So um, our. So we have a wholly owned foreign entity in in China that we've been running and operating for, I think, 16 years now. So wow. Something along those lines. Um, so it that has. You can't tell the Rhythmlink story w without telling that story. Um, that has, in certain ways, locked us into a, a lot of different things. Um, so, it, you know, I know that, especially now, you, you talk about China and you, you talk about reshoring and, and all of that. I, I would hope that some of you have questions. I'd love to answer questions about it. Uh, yeah. Gentlemen in the front, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> No, we we didn't have any interactions with CMS because because we're not selling the products there. Um, so, um, you know, FDA and, and typical inspections that we've had over the years here at the facility in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, and and in, in Shenzhen, China, over there. Um, so, but no, we didn't have any any interactions there. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, no. Now let's um, just repeat the question just, you know, for the recording as well. So the question is, are there any interactions, or did you have any interactions with the Centers for Medicare and, um, and Medicaid? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> we, 
Wells. <laughs> Sorry, I thought, I thought you were talking about something else. But um, it, because uh, the types of products that we have and, and where they fit in the DRG uh, and getting reimbursed, it, 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 everything basically, we didn't have to worry about reimbursement for the products that were there. Yes? So the question is, why did you open a, uh, essentially a company in China versus in, in South Carolina? Uh, and the answer is, there's, there's a lot of answers. One is um, the supply chain was already there. Um, the, the, the ability to do it, um, the skill set for the, the labor force was there. Um, it, it wasn't here in South Carolina. Uh, even for, for, well, so for our products, uh, they're electrodes, which means that uh, essentially there's a wire that's attached to them. Most of the products have a wire. A wire is something that's really hard, essentially, to automate and to move around. Uh, so you have to put a lot of hands on it. And at that point, being able to get hands um, to, to do the job and to do it well uh, was, was one of the things that we really needed to be able to do. Plus, we needed to do it really fast because we had to build product quickly enough before our reserves ran out. So we only had two months, two and a half months of, of product. We needed to do something right away and super quick. We've looked at reshoring and we've brought some of that reshoring back. Uh, we've done some automation um, where, but it's still, even that, it hasn't made a ton of sense for us to do it. Uh, when you look at, you know, when you look at where, where you're going to make the product, where does it make most sense to do it? Um, it, it still doesn't make a ton of sense to, to do it that way. Unless you could fully automate and, and almost have, have no one touch the product, that's really the thing that would make the most sense. Um, and, and we tried a lot of that, and it, it just doesn't work as well as, as actually having the hands on the product the way that we want it. Yes, Catherine. Sure. So the question is uh, automating some of the products that we make and, and, and stories behind that. Um, so we spent, uh, we spent a year, year and a half. Uh, we invested a whole bunch of money into different pieces of automation equipment, uh, expanded the facility, brought in clean rooms. Um, and, and, you know, a couple things happened. Um, one is the product that we were probably, the, there's three things that happened. Some of the shipping rates changed, which changed the, the cost uh, benefit analysis of, of bringing the product here. The idea is to bring it here in mass and then package it here um, versus having it be packaged elsewhere. Uh, so shipping rates changed a lot, which um, sort of they got rid of a big advantage of doing that. And, and really, the, the product was, was a higher quality than the ones that were, were built um, at our facility in China, and, and um, our customers liked them better. So it was ended up being a pretty easy decision once we, once we came down to whether or not we could we could continue to do this. The, they, the customers liked them better; they were higher quality. So, we we moved that process back. So when you you did that, I mean, I think some people, um, you know, how do you make those decisions? And it sounds like you just did the the PDCA. You know, we throw on acronyms: the Plan Do Check Act. I mean, was there more to the decision than let's just try this or? or um, 
No, I mean, it was a, it was a really d difficult decision to make because no one wanted to do it. We, you spend, this is a good example of, of essentially, in retrospect, it ends up being obviously not successful, or sure. you could call it a mistake. <laughs> but you know, we didn't we didn't know that at the time, and and the variables change over time as well. So, um, you know, when it, when we started sending out the product that we was made by machine, and we started getting customers saying, you know, why did you change your manufacturing? This is worse. We don't like it. Change back, and you couple that with the, the product was 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 less, the quality was less coming off the machines and it cost more, I mean, then it becomes an easy, an easy question. I mean, sure. we still worked really hard on trying to figure out, can, can we really make this work or not? You know, can we continue to invest? Can, what's it going to look like at scale? How can we add more to it? Um, but, it, you know, at some point it becomes really clear that it just, it didn't make sense to do, so. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, so... You were, you were building your product in China then, and it sounds like you weren't distributing in China. Were you global at that point, or was it just the U.S.? Yeah, we've been, uh, well, not global, but we sell definitely outside of the U.S. Yeah. Um, you know, at this point, um, we probably sell into about 10 different countries, including the EU, which is in, in, in an interesting spot now because of um, the move from the MDD quality management system to the MDR. Um, but yeah, that, we, we, we don't sell into China. We haven't sold into China. Um, so at this point, we're, we're really kind of, we're locked into, you know, about 10 countries plus the EU. I would be interested to hear a little bit about your regulatory strategy. I'm sure it's evolved since you first started. Um, are you able to tell that story? Sure. Um, I mean, regulatory-wise, what starts getting interesting is trying to piece together all the different regulatory requirements for all the different countries you want to be in um, and making sure that there are enough, there's enough of a market out there to, to make it worthwhile for you to do. And, and how cumbersome does all of that become? And then it becomes a big cost-benefit analysis to, to be like, well, we want to be in this place, but they're, they're just... And, and for our products, not every country is, has made the switch from reusables to disposables. All of the products that we make are disposable products. None of them are reusable at this point. Uh, some countries aren't at that point yet. Um, some countries are getting there. It, it, really, it just really becomes a kind of a, a business case analysis type of a study to look at. So as a company, how you've looked at, you mentioned MDD to MDR. How have you analyzed that, and um, what's your ultimate strategy? Can you speak to that? Sure. So, um, so for those of you who don't know, the, the, um, there is a new standard that uh, the European Union is moving to, and, and I don't even remember what the, the acronyms were, uh, are for. Medical Device Directive, Directive is probably MDD. I don't even know what MDR is. Uh, the, the move to MDR, it's, it's, it's going to be... It's, a lot more expensive, a lot more cumbersome, uh, a ton more work. Uh, and, and to make a long story short, you have a lot of companies in the world who are refusing to move from MDD to MDR simply because it's, it's too burdensome. Um, we knew that going in. My stance was great. If, if no one is doing it, that's where we want to be because we want to be a company that can, uh, can, still, can still do the types of products that we want to do. Um, Part of what we do is sell our products to the end user, but we also do a lot of business with companies coming to us and contracting out our, our services and our expertise and our manufacturing. So there's a lot of big spine companies who have come to us who are interested in, in making products that help them monitor the nervous system while they're putting in all the spinal implants. 
Um, and having the ability to say to them, hey, look, yeah, we are, we are CE certified. We can sell our product into the EU. That, that's a big sell, uh, especially when it comes to those types of projects. So our, our thought was great. My thought was great. Let's do this. And, and you know, it's hard. Great. I know it's hard. It's going to be expensive. Great. We know that. We can do hard is it things. Really gonna, <laughs> is it really going to be that hard? And so uh, the answer is yes. And eventually, they, the quality and the regulatory and engineering and operations, and they finally broke me and broke me down. And um, so we made a decision in this past December that we're not going to do it, and we're going to... We're going to keep our MDD until that expires in 2024. What that means for us is that we won't be able to put new products on the market in the European Union. Uh, and that, again, is kind of a business case type of thing. It just didn't make sense for us for all for everything they wanted us to do to become certified for MDR. Uh, it, it just it really didn't make sense for us to do. So I, I reluctantly said, all right, well, fine, let's do it. I listened. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I, I, I'm hoping in the future that they will change some of the, the regulations because there are a lot of companies who are not going this route. Um, and I think that they're, they're potentially going to have to change. They're going to run into some supply chain issues with just having medical devices and products available since so many manufacturers are, are, are foregoing that, that new standard. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts the potential regulation. We were speaking with someone... Uh, on the podcast recently, who is just talking about how things are moving from clinical testing, you know, to, to initiate in the U.S. So um, it's very interesting. I think I saw someone fall asleep, so I wonder if maybe we should go ahead and see if they have any additional questions while we're while we're at it on this subject. EUMDR is everybody's favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. So the question is, have we seen supply chain disruptions because uh, of COVID? Uh, and the answer is yes. Uh, like, you know, everybody has. Uh, for us in particular, um, so COVID was, COVID was and is, continues to be a trip. And um, uh, specifically for supply chain, I would say some of the biggest things that are going on now is, is shipping and shipping containers. And how do you move product around? Uh, how do you, how do you, we, we send a lot of, of raw materials uh, from the U.S. to China, and then and some of the semi-finished goods back, and we we just we ship all over the world, not just from the U.S. but from other countries where raw materials are coming from all over the place, and the shipping containers are they're super expensive now. Whether you're flying them over or or you're putting them on the ocean and uh, holdups in the ports, so yeah, that that's probably been the thing that has has hurt us the most. We had a pretty good sense of what was coming when when COVID happened. Um, and we've been conservative in the sense, as far as inventory goes, we've loaded up on inventory, raw materials, finished goods. Uh, we've been able to stay ahead of, of the curve in a lot of different ways, uh, which has been good. Um, we haven't been, we haven't really been crushed yet by anything in particular, and hopefully it stays that way, because uh, it's going to continue to, it's going to continue to be an issue for I don't know how long. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's not getting any better. Yeah, or it changes. It's it's like an accordion, you know. It it just it snakes and it and it moves back and forth, and and certain supply chains will affect other ones, and you really never know where the next issue is going to pop up. Do you have any insights for companies who are maybe starting out with their manufacturing, trying to overcome that, or? 
it's, it's tough, it's a balance because you, you sink a bunch of money into inventory and raw materials and supply chains get better or, or they get worse. Or you don't have to, it, it's yeah. really hard. It's, you know, you have to, um, I, I personally, I usually tend to be pretty conservative or try to err on the safe side. So I'm going to want to have more inventory, more raw materials. And for a really long time, and it's one of the reasons why we're here is just in time inventory um, is in principle wonderful and you can reduce your inventories and you don't have that much money tied up in inventories and supply chain and raw material but uh, if something goes wrong you're, you're really kind of you're in yeah. trouble so um, we've expanded what we would call our our, our different levels you know our base levels where we want to keep finished goods and raw materials uh, just trying to get ready for the next disruption we have one other question I don't know if you still have it in your mind Sure. Uh, so the question is, um, talking about Rhythmlink's OEM um, and other partnering and, and capabilities within the company. Um, so, so let me take a st step back for a second. So, so we're a company that designs, this is also probably would be good for us to, to get into. We're a company that yeah. designs, uh, manufactures, distributes uh, products that either go on or in the patient to record or elicit physiologic information. So we basically try to identify when, when paralysis is going to happen, when strokes are going to happen, um, looking for seizures. Uh, so we put different products all over and in the body. Uh, and we monitor the nervous system. And we do that in the operating room. I'd mentioned that earlier. We also do this in the ER and in the ICU where we're, we're monitoring the brain, looking for seizures. Um, we do it in a couple other different clinical settings. And uh, one of the areas I alluded to earlier is doing some OEM. So we have companies that will come to us and say, particularly usually what happens, they come to us uh, and they say, we need to monitor a nerve root. Uh, uh, let's say that the nerve root's coming off of L5 and S1. Um, we don't know how to do it. You, you can do that. We want to put the screws and the rods and the plates in there to, to stabilize the spine when we go in there and, and we fix things. How, how can you help us make sure that those nerves are intact during the surgery? So we say, yeah, we can do that. And so we'll leverage all of our, our 510Ks, the regulatory, um, the design, distribution. Uh, one of the advantages of starting a company and bootstrapping it yourselves is that you have to figure everything out, out as you're going. So over time, over 20 years, we've, I like to say we've got fairly decent, broad and deep experience. Because... We didn't have any other choice. We either had to figure it out ourselves or we couldn't do it because we didn't have any money. We didn't have any partners. Um, uh, so because of that, what we learned is that we can really leverage that in-house capability from, from manufacturing, design, quality, regulatory, and, and we can help other companies uh, with their products and their ideas. So we do OEM stuff for spine companies. We do it for implant companies. We do it for uh, companies that are in the heart, the heart space, EKG. <clears throat> excuse me, EKG companies. Um, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that we're starting to get involved with now. We, we have a, a team of folks who are going out and actively looking for different OEM and custom opportunities. So um, instead of just waiting for the pro those, those opportunities to come for us. So um, essentially, if you want to connect a patient to a machine, that's really where, where we live and what we're good at. Awesome. Um, yeah. So that, those are things that we can help with. Yeah, that's, that's good to know. A lot of our listeners are, you know, maybe medical device startups that um, could potentially use that type of partnership. So it's good to know. So one other question I had, because, you know, since I get to ask my own questions, I'm pretty, pretty lucky here. Um, 
you've you've seen a lot of different changes. I mean, your position has changed in the company. I don't know how many of um, people consider themselves a founder or maybe a potential CEO. Uh, how, what does that look like? Uh, How's that evolved? I, you know, it, it's um, you, you don't know what you're getting into um, <laughs> when you when you get started, and that's fine, and that's great, and. Uh, it's not easy and it's hard. And so, you know, I, I am a co-founder. I've been the CEO for, I don't know, 15 years, something along those lines. And as the company changes, you have to change. And you can, you really can't ever become the bottleneck. If you become the bottleneck in a, a small company, we're, you know, we're no longer tiny anymore. But um, uh, if you become the bottleneck in any company, you're in trouble. Um, so, and your role changes as the company grows and you bring more people in and you have more capabilities and um, you need to really be able to step aside and let go. And that's a, that's a really hard thing to do, especially when it, it's your company, it's your baby, especially when, you know, early on you're sort of running the razor's edge between disaster and, uh, you know, continuing to sort of push things along. So. Uh, I think for me, hopefully, one of the things I've done halfway decently is evolve my position so that I'm not the bottleneck anymore. And I keep getting out of the way and keep bringing in people who can do the job that needs to be done better than I can. Um, it, it becomes a, a bit paradoxical, paradoxical because the, the bigger you get and the more there is to do, the less that you do. Uh, and it's a really weird, strange thing to not necessarily throw yourself into every issue, into every project. Um, you, you mentioned a phrase, trust but verify. So usually when we use that phrase, we focus on the verify, but it sounds like you're also saying you got to actually trust at some point. You got to trust. You, you absolutely have to trust. If you don't trust, you'll never grow. You'll never yeah. not become that bottleneck. But at the same point, uh, especially when <laughs> you can really set yourself up, if you're never looking over your shoulder and, and, and never having some checks and balances, you can really find yourself in a, into a, in a pickle pretty yeah. quickly. So, you know, it's... We, we try to, to uh, part of our core as a company uh, and the people we want there, we want them to be accountable, you know, and I, I, everyone wants that. But it, it, that's something that we really try to, to bring into the company and make sure that the, the people that we're bringing in and, and, and that are continuing to do well in the company, they're accountable. They do what they say that they're going to do. They're, they're reliable. They're trustworthy. Um, and, you know, you, it makes it easier to trust when you hopefully are working with really good people who share those values. Yeah. So I think we're getting close to time, but uh, just kind of thinking about, you know, for, you're, you're speaking to a lot of different types of medical device companies, and we're in South Carolina as well. Any advice that you can give to those people who are uh, starting out, and maybe they're somewhere halfway between where you started or where you are now? Any, any insight you want to give? Last um, parting, parting thoughts? Sure. You know, SC Bio has really been, really has been pretty fantastic. So I've been involved with SC Bio. Um, for a long time now, I don't know, 15 years in, in a couple of different iterations. Um, one of the things that was really interesting when SC Bio was really ramping back up the, um, 15 years ago is making connections between all the different companies and resources and organizations in South Carolina. And once we started to do that, I started to realize there's a lot more here than we originally thought. And as the years have gone on and as SC Bio has grown and the life sciences in, in South Carolina have grown, um, those connections keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And, and, and you know, the state's doing really well. It's growing. SE Bio has re really been a big, big part of that. So where I'm tying that in is um, the ability to reach out and make connections and ask for help 
uh, which is something that I don't always like to do. Um, but to ask for help and to really lean on the people who are in whatever community you're in, um, whether it's South Carolina, wherever it is, there are going to be organizations. You have to ask for help. You have to collaborate. You have to really lean on other people and trust that uh, and be vulnerable that you can, you can say, hey, here's my issue. I don't know the answer. Or, and, you know, can you help me? So I, I would always go that route. Uh, it's something I wish that I would, I would do more. Every time I do it, I always come away pleasantly surprised. and like, why didn't I do that earlier? That was really wonderful. You know, so uh, I, that's a piece of advice I think that would be really helpful. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. I, it was an interesting conversation for me. I feel like I learned a lot. Um, for those listening, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. We've been speaking with Sean Regan. If you want to learn more about what he does and, and what Rhythm Link does, you can look at the show notes. Um, uh, it really enjoyed it. This is Greenlight. This is powered by Greenlight Guru. So we are the only medical device success platform that is specifically for medical devices. So if you're interested in learning more about Greenlight Guru, go over to www.greenlight.guru. Thank you for listening and uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank you. The best medical device companies don't just follow the rules, they lead with quality. At Greenlight Guru, we try to do the same. Our medical device success platform is based on the latest FDA and ISO standards, as well as the best practices of medical device manufacturers who lead the industry with products of the highest quality. If you're ready to bring safer, better medical devices to market faster, contact greenlight.guru today.